The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. Today we are going to look at the gospel as it's found in the book of John. Now, I know we've looked at the testimony of John in his first epistle. Now we're going to look at his his greater work. For uh, all of you who are new to this, there are four gospels. Gospel simply means good news, good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, the four are, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are four different accounts written. These are not biographies about Jesus, but they, they tell the story of his public ministry, his crucifixion and resurrection. And while they all have the same message, they are written to different people groups, like Matthew is written to Jews that live outside of Israel. Mark is written to, uh, largely to people who are illiterate, like the slaves. And Luke is to Greeks and everybody else. But what about John? John is the fourth of the Gospels, and it's very different. He presents a great deal of material that is not included in the other three. And, and a lot of that material uh, is in the last two weeks or so of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. John was written in about 85 AD, again, quite a long time after the others. There's always a lot of controversy as why did John write? Why did he feel? Was he correcting them? Was he thinking, you know, what, what were his reasons? And there are all kinds of experts out there that have gone to seminary and they've got some kind of doctorate degree and they've published their thesis. And at the end of the day, I don't know that any of them have any better idea. But there's something that we can use to interpret. And we, the principle here is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's see what John said was the purpose of, his, uh, of him writing this book. And for that, we're going to turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, John gives us his, this is the reason that the book was written. Uh, now, could it have done some other things? Perhaps. But the primary reason is evangelistic. He wants the reader to believe two things, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing that we would have life in his name. John uses an interesting term here, signs. You'll see that in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs. The word signs is John's way of describing miracles. So what he's saying is Jesus did all kinds of miracles in the presence of the disciples, the other witnesses, but I didn't write about all those. But the ones I did write about, and there's seven of them, they're enough. These are enough for you to believe who Jesus is and that by believing you would have life in his name. Two things to point out here. He, he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Again, that is a Greek word. Our, the underlying word we would say in English is the Messiah. Again, this is the prophesied, promised descendant of David, King David, the lineal descendant of King David, 
who would one day sit on the throne of David. He would rule all of Israel, and he would rule all the nations. He would do it forever, and he would make an end of sin. That, that is what the prophets and, and the law tell us to expect from the Messiah. And John is saying, okay, I want you to believe that about him. And the second thing I want you to believe is that he is the Son of God. The Son of God is a term that has difficulty for us in the 21st century because we tend to think of that in human terms like, oh, there was a mommy God and a daddy God, and they got together and had a little God, and that was Jesus. Okay, no. In this, the sense that it was used 2,000 years ago, to say that someone was the son of something or, or, or someone was to say that they were of the same essence. We see a very good example in the Gospels where this very John who writes the book and his brother James were disciples, and they were, in a word, hotheads. Always wanted to bring thunder and lightning and strike down people who weren't being nice to Jesus. And so Jesus got to calling them sons of thunder. Now, in fact, their father's name was Zebedee, and, and it was not thunder, but it was they were like thunder, unstable, loud, you know, lightning comes from them. So the Son of God is simply that he is of the same essence as God. And then once you know all those facts, that you then believe, and then you will have life in his name. In his prologue, and we're going to look at that next, uh, chapter 1, 1 through 18, John wants to deal with this concept of Jesus as God, like right up front. So verses 1 through 18 are like a big smackdown, okay? It's like, okay, guys, we need to get this established right up front that he is the Son of God and that he is the essence of God and, and what that looks like. So I will now read through 1 through 18, but I'll do a few verses at a time and make comments. John 1, well, I'll do 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning. Where, where do we see those words in Scripture earlier in time? Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so he is echoing, and he is pointing us back, to the reader, back to Genesis 1. In the beginning was God, and God created the heaven and the earth. Now, Here's an interesting part. How did God create? He spoke words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a firmament. And God said. So this creative process that was going on was because God was speaking. And John is saying, yes, these words were what created. And, and that is who Jesus is. He, he is the word. He is the creative process. And he goes on, I mean, clear. The beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, the word, and without him, not anything made that was made. So this word of God is not itself a created being. And that will come as a shock to many cults. But he was not a created being. He was the agent in which did all of creation. He, he is uncreated. He is God. Verses 4 and 5. In him, the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, that first clause, in him was life, is very deceptive. You really aren't appreciating what it says. 
we would think to ourselves, well, we have life. Yes, but that's not what John is saying. See, you and I have derived life. Mom and dad get together, there's conception, and life is conveyed to us. It's imputed to us. It's, it's given to us, derived. The word is life. It, it, no one ever gave it to him. So that is one of the essential qualities of God. The, the essence of God is that he has life within himself. You and I do not. Uh, I just got back from a funeral a few hours ago, okay? This woman was 75. Last month, her life was gone, okay? Our life will, it will leave all of us before the rapture, but not with, not with the word, not with Jesus. He inherently is life. Now, the next part of that sentence, and his life was the light of men. Life of Jesus it gives us light, lets us see. What, what is it giving us light and helping us to see? It is who God is. So the life of Jesus gives us light, gives us understanding of who God is. Remember when Philip said, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus said, don't you know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, he uses the next term, uh, sentence, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We, we see uh, pretty clearly in the last several decades, uh, as archaeology and, and interpreting the Dead Sea Scrolls, how, how important the Essenes were at that time. And much of their writing outside of, of Scripture things that they wrote include things like light and darkness, this good and bad. And John uses a lot of their terms in his writing. The next section, uh, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. So John gives us another witness. Let's go on now to uh, 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You know, this is just a a very sad kind of commentary on human nature. So the true light of who God is, is coming to us in bodily form and to teach us and show us, and we don't know him. That nobody seems to recognize him. So even though we were all made through the word, yet we don't know who he is. And then verse 11, he came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. Very sad. Now, the good news, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John never uses the word faith. He always uses the word believe. So to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in who he was, we could also say who put their faith in him. It's, it's the same concept. John just simply doesn't use faith. He uses the word believe. And he said, we are given the right to become the children of God, but not children born normally, but children born through the will of God. What does that sound familiar to you? Isn't this John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking 
to uh, Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus, his brain is tied into a pretzel now. He's like, how can I be born again? Go into my mother's womb. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You are spiritually dead. For you to have life, you need to be born of God. And of course, that process is believing in who Jesus is and what he did. 14 through 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All right, so we've gone through these first 16, 17 verses, and we heard all these things about the Word. The Word, clearly, he is presenting the Word as God. And then he tells us in 14, this Word became flesh. Now, that isn't that he changed his nature. Got to be clear here. The underlying Greek does not imply that he, you know, is the third thing, you know. He went from being God, he metamorphosized into man. That's, that's not what, what he means here. It's that God took on flesh. He is still fully God and fully man, and he dwelt among us. And from what is presented, John is saying, we beheld the glory. We, we beheld this glory, and we are the witnesses, and we are asking you to believe on our testimony that this is God come in the flesh. And then 16, so from Jesus' fullness, we have received, and this term, grace upon grace, it's just the idea that the grace keeps overflowing from God for for those who believe. Let's go to verse 18, the last one. No one has ever seen God, okay, and then we've got a semicolon, only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, I'm using ESV English Standard Version. It's a better written, translated version than some of our older English translations. Some of your older translations will say, no one has ever seen God except God the Son. But actually, and literally, the underlying language is, no one has ever seen God, the only God. So that first clause, no one has ever seen God, we got a semicolon. That means it's a complete sentence, all right? The next part is a new sentence, and yet we see the only God who is at God the Father's side, so we have, it's not the same person, the same entity, right? The only God who is at God the Father's side, he has made God the Father known. So Jesus is the only God who makes the Father known. Now, God made himself known, God the Father, in Old Testament times, but it was always in, in a veiled form. We call that a theophany, an appearance of God. Sometimes God appeared as an angel. Sometimes God appeared and spoke through things like the fire, the burning bush. Uh, Joshua got to see this uh, mighty warrior in the middle of a road on the way to, um, to do battle, but it was God, right? But now we, we get to see God come in the flesh to give us a fuller view of who he is. 
For purposes of today, I want to give you a memory verse. And so going back to John 20, I'm going to just concentrate on 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's an easy one to memorize. Now, when John writes his book, he has, as I said, seven miracles, which he says, that's enough for you to believe. So I'm going to go through them briefly in chronological order here. The first uh, miracle was when Jesus turned water into wine at the marriage in Cana, which is a town outside of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus showed that he had power over the elements. He could change water into wine. In the second miracle, there is a, a nobleman, somebody of importance, who has a son who is near death. He hears Jesus is in town. He runs to find him, and he says, please come to my house and heal my son. And Jesus said, Go, your son has been healed. Well, this guy doesn't know what to make of it, but he goes home and the servants come out and they go, your your son is healed. Well, what time was he healed? And of course, it was the same time that Jesus said, he is healed, all right? You, You see those creative words again. So Jesus can heal from a distance and he can heal from a a sickness that is near death. The third miracle, Jesus heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. All right, so Bethesda was a pool that was in Jerusalem outside of the temple that was used. Several of the uh, preparation of the sacrifices and and washing the water uh, for the priest. And this pool, the underlying springs occasionally would make the water turbulent. And the superstitious people thought that perhaps an invisible angel was touching the water. And the thought was the first person into the disturbed water would be healed. And this man, who was lame, to the point that he could not walk, had been lame for 38 years. Now, we don't know whether it was a congenital defect, whether he got hurt in an injury, but after 38 years, clearly his condition was hopeless. And Jesus stopped by and said, do you want to get healed? And apparently the answer was yes. And Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And he did. The fourth great miracle, Jesus fed thousands of people out in the desert. Jesus is out teaching in the desert, and we don't know how many thousands of people were there. We are told that there were 5,000 men. And then how many uh, women and children? You know, we'll be talking 1,500, 2,000 people. It gets to the end of the day. And, you know, the disciples are concerned, you know, these people haven't eaten. And uh, Jesus says, well, do they have any food? And, of course, Andrew is able to produce a little boy who's got a small meal that his mother gave him, and I refer to that as the happy meal. And from that little happy meal, Jesus is able to produce food to feed 5,000 men. And they had a whole lot of food left over that the disciples could take with them. So just like Moses and how God fed the people in the desert. And, and Jesus is saying, you know, I am the bread of life, and I, I'm going to give you a better food than Moses did. Again, though, he's creating essentially something out of nothing. In the fifth miracle, it's a little bit of time later, it's clear that the people want to follow Jesus, not because they want to get saved, but because they think that he's going to feed them and they don't have to work again, and they're going to make him king. And so Jesus dismisses his disciples and said, okay, get in a boat, row across the Sea of Galilee. I'll meet you over there. Jesus goes up into the mountain to pray. All right, it's late. So that would have been evening after they'd finished eating. The disciples get in the boat and they start rowing across the sea. 
It's about seven miles wide. Well, as they're rowing, a fierce storm comes up. They only get about halfway, and the wind is so strong that they're not making any forward progress. So now it's at night. They're in a terrible storm. They're not going anywhere. And suddenly they see Jesus walking on the water, and they are greatly frightened. Who wouldn't be? And Jesus said, don't be afraid. It is I. And he gets in the boat, and immediately the boat is on the other shore. Okay, now think about what's just happened. Jesus has defied gravity. He has walked on the water, and he didn't get his knees wet. And then as soon as he gets in the boat, we have this beam me up, Scotty, and then beam me down, and instantly you're somewhere else. How did he do that? Well, because he's God. The sixth miracle, Jesus heals a man born blind. So this is in the last couple of weeks before the crucifixion. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He comes along, and he meets this man who was born blind. It's a congenital defect. And somebody asks Jesus, well, who sinned? Because if the man is blind, it's probably because somebody did a great sin. Now, he was born blind, so did he sin in his mother's womb? Did, he, did his parents sin? And Jesus, you know, chuckles. No, nobody sinned. He was born blind so that God's glory and power could be revealed now. And he heals the man. Uh, uh, let's think about that one, too. With all of the medicine we have today, no one is able to heal a person born blind. And then finally, the seventh and the most spectacular of these signs, these miracles, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for four days in the tomb. His body was decaying. There's a strong smell. And Jesus has the stone rolled away, and he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus does, showing that he has power over death. No one else can raise someone from the dead, but he did. He is even more powerful than death. You know, in the uh, Old Testament, God revealed his name to Moses. Moses is called to, to ministry when he sees the vision of God in the burning bush. And he listens to all this, and he, he's not really sure he wants to do it, but at some point he does it. Uh, okay, okay, I'll do what you say. I'll go to Egypt and, you know, get the people free or, you know, be your instrument. But he says to God, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? All right, like, what's your name? Well, that's a good question. And God revealed his name to Moses. God said, I am who I am. God goes on to say to Moses, you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And you can read that in Exodus 3. So this phrase, I am, okay, in Hebrew is... uh, Y-H-W-H. Nobody knows how to pronounce it, but the best we can do, we think it's pronounced Yahweh. God is telling Moses, this is my covenant name. This is my name, which my covenant people will know me by, Yahweh. So in Judaism, everybody understood unquestionably that the name for God was Yahweh. Now, one of the Ten Commandments was you not take the Lord's name in vain. So you you couldn't make fun of the name Yahweh, and you couldn't claim to be Yahweh, because if you did, you could be stoned. And yet Jesus makes a statement three times in the book of John, and he claims that he is the I Am. He is claiming to be God, the essence of God. 
He is defining himself, identifying himself to God. Now, these three great I am statements of Jesus in the, in, in the Gospel of John, they begin in, actually we'll go back to the walking on the water. Now, when I first said to you, Jesus said, and I, I was reading the, uh, the English translation, do not be afraid, it is I. That actually is not correct. That is not what it says. The English translators, trust me on this, you can go look it up. They, they just, it is I, that's what they put down. But if you look at the underlying Greek, what Jesus said is, do not be afraid, Yahweh, I am. In other words, don't be afraid of what's happening. I am the God of the universe, and that's all you need to know. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. So he, he is clearly declaring himself to be God in front of the disciples, and he's decisively proved that by walking on the water and teleporting the ship, the, the, the vessel, to the other side of the lake, which is three and a half miles away. In the second instance where uh, Jesus claims the I am, uh, and this is in John chapter 8, uh, he is dealing with the complaints of the Pharisees. And he finally, just to put an end to the discussion, Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am Yahweh. Before Abraham was, so they were trying to say, the Pharisees are trying to say, well, do you think you are better than our father Abraham? And Jesus is saying, yes, I am Yahweh. Now, they very much understood what Jesus was saying because the account says they picked up stones and they intended to stone him, to kill him, because he was claiming to be God. Now, it wasn't his time, and so he simply passed through them and went on. The third instance uh, of Jesus applying to himself the name I am comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is the night of the Last Supper, the night that he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the mob comes to arrest Jesus, this is pretty cool, really. I don't know how, you know, you and I, you know, we not have nerves of steel like this. Jesus said, uh, who, whom, whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am he. Then something strange happened. As soon as Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they all fell down on the ground. Okay. I don't know. Were they slain in the spirit? There was power going on here, though. They got a big smackdown. Now, let's go back to what the English translation says. Jesus replied, I am he. The word he was added by English translators, okay? The actual words, the underlying words in Greek are I am, which takes us back to Yahweh. And so Jesus is proclaiming himself to be God. They are thrown on the ground. And Jesus is making the point, you can't take me with you. I go voluntarily. Now, <clears throat> there are actually seven more times where Jesus uses the I am. But he uses it in what we call a metaphorical form. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, he said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world when he heals the man born blind. Jesus said, I am the door. No one can get to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Again, this is an image we see constantly in the Old Testament as God as the shepherd who takes care of his people. 
I am the good shepherd. And then there's the time when just before he resurrects Lazarus, and he's talking to his sister, Martha, and she says, yeah, I know he'll be resurrected in the life to come. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says in the upper room, I am the true vine. I am. Everything that you get for life and living is through me. You are simply the stems coming off the vine. I really like this one, uh, this last one, John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father any other way. Okay? I am the only way. I am truth. You know, I already said that life was inherent to the essence of God. It's not derived. And the same with truth. God does not follow some uh, third-party subjective idea of truth. Truth is who God is. Everything else must be compared. And Jesus is saying, I am that way, the truth, the life. So friends, we go back to our memory verse. John says, I've written about these seven signs, these seven miracles, and everything else in my book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised son of David, to set on the throne, to make an end to sin, and to rule the nations forever. And I am the son of God, and that by believing all this, you may have life in his name. Dear friends, let me pray over you. I thank you, Lord, for this time to look at your word. Just these, these strong images, these strong statements, just making it clear that you are the essence, only God, and that you came in the flesh and that you died for the sins of the world. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.